Movie day in middle school was always the best. Usually it was because our teacher was out sick and we had a sub, and so some bedraggled stranger would wheel in that crazy AV cart with the 300-pound CRT TV, push a tape into the VCR, adjust the tracking, and we were effectively taken care of for the next period so our sub could read magazines in peace. There was an epic run for about a week where we would watch nothing but Ken Burns' The Civil War. I don't know what my teacher came down with, and I'm glad they made a full recovery, but I'm grateful. Those are formative years to watch one of the best docs ever made. What I'm saying is, for a student of a certain age, in a history class with a sick teacher, a movie can be the very best vehicle for knowledge. I remember a lot of those movies. And this happened quite a bit. If it wasn't Ken Burns' Civil War, it was Glory or Roots or a handful of other films that edged right up to the line of needing a signed permission slip from your parents to come to class. Those memories came flooding back to me the other day, talking to a friend years younger than me, and they mentioned that when their history teacher was out sick, the sub wheeled in that AV cart and showed them The Patriot, a film that if all you ever knew about it was gleaned from the box cover, could conceivably be about the American Revolution fought with the aid of Mel Gibson's giant face hovering over the battlefield, taking enemy blunderbuss fire. And if you've actually watched the movie, you'd know that the film's actual story is just as fantastical. The Patriot is about a lot of things, but is it about the Revolutionary War? Not really. I'm not even a substitute history teacher, and I know that. What the Patriot is about is revenge. It's like Taken on horses. And it's the uniquely Mel Gibson-y kind of revenge that his characters in the late 90s and early 2000s frequently embody. Oh, they start peaceful, but then you kill his too-young-for-him bride or one of his seven kids and end up unleashing a gore tsunami for the next two hours. The blood packet industrial complex loves Mel Gibson movies. And that's not to say that everything is fictionalized. American colonials fight the British in the film, so they got that right. But Mel Gibson's character, Benjamin Martin, is a composite based on a number of real historical figures and only the badasses and only their most badass moments. He faces the sniveling and grotesque Colonel Tavington, a Jason Isaacs character that bears little resemblance to the Colonel Tarleton upon whom he was based. I'm sure the historical guy was a dirtbag or whatever, but Isaac's character is one sick fuck. The film's climax takes us to the Battle of Cowpens, 1781. Was the Martin composite there? I mean, some of the guys that he was based on might have been there. Was Tavington killed there? I don't know. Can a grown man stab a flagpole through a horse? Not sure I want to know. What I do know is this. A substitute history teacher would do better queuing up some episodes of Friendly Fire than the year 2000 Roland Emmerich-directed revenge film that just so happens to occur during the Revolutionary War. That film, today on the show, The Patriot. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that is most assuredly not the conduct of a gentleman. I'm Ben Harrison. 
I'm Adam Pranica. And I'm John Roderick. Go Pats! <laughs> The thing is that those are the New England Patriots, and we're dealing with the Southern Patriots. (laughs) A a weird choice to set this movie in the South. Like, the Mel Gibson character is not a slave owner. (laughs) But, ding! But, like, everybody around him is. Yes, and he is also. And the the movie is just like... Right, well, like, he's just gainfully employs several (laughs) free black farm workers, like, a thing that assuredly did not happen there. The most insane thing in any movie we've ever watched is when the the British guy comes up to the, you know, to the... uh, the like 15 black people that have been working on working in the in his fields and they say if you join the british army you'll be granted your freedom and the guy says we're already free we're just working here of our own accord and it was like the it was like the craziest this guy offers great benefits he's uh contributing to our 401k i mean this is this is like a great work if you can spike get it. lee went to see this movie with his wife and and came came out the other side and was just like we just sat in there for two and a half hours and just just screamed into our hands spike lee threw a garbage can through the projection booth afterwards <laughs> having him be a slave owner which he would have been would not have made this film worse it would have made it better and it would have been a small it's a small detail i mean not a small detail but like it would have been a major way of locating this film in actual history and time and and we would have been able to yeah. to see this character as a as a you know as a as a real life person instead of this like penthouse magazine vaseline on the lens it wouldn't have made Benjamin Martin's character any worse either. Yeah, and it's and it's the and it's the it's just the awkward attempt of the filmmakers to to turn him into some kind of like superhero above reproach or something. It's one of the major reasons that from the outset you feel like you you feel like you're hate watching this movie. Or I mean, you know, it 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 takes it out of what it what it claims to want to be. And puts it into this other weird place where you just, I just feel the dirty hands of the studio all over it. Well, this is a Roland Emmerich film because, and and, and I think that that's like a, like a useful thing to keep in mind. Like his, his work is in the summer action blockbuster. Like the movies he made right before this were Stargate, Independence Day, and Godzilla. <laughs> so, so right. like, like I think that. I think that, like, if, you know, Matthew Broderick's character in Godzilla was a slave owner, it doesn't make it a better movie. And that's the kind of math that they're doing here. The P. Diddy song in The Patriot, I felt, uh, was pretty <laughs> out of place. <laughs> but but honestly, I didn't see this movie in the theater, but I, I have seen it in, I have seen it in bits and pieces in, in a half a dozen hotel rooms. I've never watched it all the way through, but you've seen AC Slater introduce it in several <laughs> hotel rooms. I, I expected to really not like it. Uh, I, I I thought it was going to be Braveheart set in the Revolutionary War. I thought it was going to, you know, I'd read quite a lot of criticism of the way the British were portrayed. I saw a lot of the. I mean, there's so much melodrama in this movie. The freaking violins are all over everything. But there were parts of the movie that I really enjoyed, and at two and a half hours long, it was 
an hour too long. Yeah. It's got so much movie that you could find 90 minutes that are like pretty good in there. That's right. That's right. There's a 90 minute movie in this movie that's like, wow, because Mel Gibson one of the things I hated about Braveheart was that Mel Gibson did his lethal weapon two eyeball rolling through the whole thing. You know, like <laughs> he, he wasn't acting. He was just doing he was just making crazy eyes. But he acts in this movie. Uh, that's I didn't I didn't see that coming. I I still didn't see that in the film. <laughs> I, there was something so unhinged about him. He did a little bit of this in Braveheart. A lot more in The Patriot, which was that unhinged, frenetic, chaotic revenge energy. And like you were calling him uh, a superhero earlier in your description of the character, but like superheroes don't lose it the way he does. And when superheroes do, that's the low point of a superhero film. And he does that all the time in this. Well, his his character is... Benjamin Daddy War Crime Martin, right? So he's a guy that is like grappling with the darkness inside of him. That's why he doesn't want to go to war at the outset because he's like afraid of what it will bring out of him. Were you surprised about how little this film had to do with patriotism at all? Like, this is a revenge film. This is another film where Mel Gibson's family is murdered or wronged, and it's up to him to. To, to get justice at the end of his axe handle. It is poorly named. I mean, I, I, <laughs> I wrestled a lot with, um, as you say, there are, there are five movies in this movie. And one of them is Stargate. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough thing to introduce into, the, into our program, and we've never done it before. Or I've never done it before. But, but, and I used to get into this argument with um, a, a good friend of mine, because my friend didn't have kids and and I do have a kid. And in watching movies now where kids are um, are put at risk in the movie as a plot device. Right. I have a very, very different response to it than I did before I had a kid. Before I had a kid, you could take an eight year old child and put a knife to its throat for no other reason than to give the, the moviegoer a thrill. And I would be just chomping on my popcorn going, yeah, kill the kid. Ha, ha, ha. Woo. And Jesus, it's a wonder you don't vote Republican. And now when I, when I go to see a movie and a kid is used as a way to establish whether someone is a good guy or a bad guy, you know, a, a child is used as a, as stakes in a movie. It affect it affects yeah. me in a, in a big way. And so, there's Mel Gibson in this movie reckoning with his with his uh, atrocity behavior in the, the wilderness during the French and Indian Wars. And there's Mel Gibson in this movie who's, you know, who's like vengeance Mel fighting for his, for, you know, like revenging the death of his son. But there's there's also this Mel Gibson that's got that ha- that feels like he has a responsibility to his children and that that responsibility yeah overshadows every other responsibility and although it's really overplayed here overplayed to the point that it's like treacly and gross there are several (laughs) moments where it feels very real and as a parent like it struck me in a different way i think the first six times i saw this movie in a in a hotel room i wasn't a parent yet right and so 
watched it with that. Like, well, you were working on it in those hotels. Well, that's exactly right. Except, you know, I hadn't worked out exactly like what gender my partner was going to be. <laughs> I want you two to start with the officers and work your way down. For as many movies as it contains, like I think that the representation of children in it is is pretty multivarious. Like there's the the son that that wants to go off to war and you know he forbids it, and then there's like the younger kids that are experiencing like the the trauma, and there's the the son that's the that's just kind of a a prop to be killed and inspire vengeance. But like I, I, I thought that the consideration and attention that the film gave to how traumatizing some of these experiences would be to small children was a surprising element in a movie that is as emphatically an action movie as this is. Well, that and and also I, I think, and believe me, like going to bat for this movie is is a struggle I love for me. This. But <laughs> at this time. You don't have to go to bat for the whole thing. At John. this time, as a as a you know a planter in South Carolina, there was no United States of America. The idea that that as a, that you know an American patriot at this point would jump into a war that was at the in the early stages of the of the thing, primarily taking place in Massachusetts and New York. Um, you know, the colonies thought of themselves. I mean, depending on who you talk to thought of themselves as independent states or, you know, uh, and there was a lot of loyalty to to England as... As represented by Adam Baldwin only. <laughs> but... Hey, we don't know that yet. He could have been Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> he, he is a little bit of a lesser Vincent D'Onofrio, isn't he? His reluctance to join the rebellion until his, you know, until his son is cold-bloodedly murdered... That's not just someone killed my parents so I become Batman thing. That feels <laughs> that feels somewhat reasonable. Yeah, I mean the 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 uh, slow motion shot of the pearls coming off the string and bouncing on the ground was you know kind of pegged the needle a little bit, but you know like we get the idea. There are so few lines of dialogue dedicated to characters with mixed feelings about what side to take here, and there is an interesting movie that is not in this film that is about those people you know like to to reduce the conflict into the adam baldwin character only and the tavington character only versus the martin character like i was hoping to have learned a little bit more about the revolution than i did from this film and it's too bad because a blockbuster has a unique opportunity to do that we see it uh, several times though i mean in the state house when they when they first convene, there's a lot of argument about whether or not to 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 vote for the levy to support the war in the church. Right. They're not. They're never like I'm loyal to the king, though. They're either pro the war or anti the war for kind of pragmatic right, reasons. Right. They all fucking hate King George. Well, sure, he's crazy. Also, taxation without <laughs> representation. Hello. I thought it was interesting how far like this movie sets itself away from all of the names we know from the Revolutionary War. Right. Like, there's kind of a character that's based on the Marquis de Lafayette, but that's as close as it gets to having somebody that we recognize from the Revolutionary War as, like, you know, casual Revolutionary War knower-abouters. We get a George Washington cameo, like, shot from very far away. 
we we don't think about the Revolutionary War as being one that takes place in a lot of different theaters because the way we learn about it in school is there's the shot heard around the world, Paul Revere's ride, and then there were some there were some battles where people marched. There was the crossing of the Delaware in the cold winter. Yeah, everybody's rapping. That's right. And then somehow it kind of wraps up somewhere. I mean, there's a little something happens in Trenton. There's oh, New York gets in for it. But we don't we don't hear about the fact that the that the southern states were a major area of war making and kind of ended up being somewhat of the, the decisive. Um, the, the, the British had sort of kicked our butts in the north and it was. It was this runaround strategy uh, down in the south that ended up kind of tipping the scales. And that's not really told in our story, you know? Yeah. And and it's a shame because, like, in watching this movie, I found it very jackable to watch all those plantation houses burn to the ground. (laughs) In learning how much of the Revolutionary War was fought in the south, it kind of gives you another picture of of the Civil War and you know the the cultural things that were already in play down there like one of the guys that mel gibson's character was kind of based on was a guy named henry light horse harry who was robert e lee's father and another guy was thomas sumter who uh, fort sumter was named after where the civil war began. So like the military culture of the south, the the its connection to the revolutionary war and its self, its self image within the revolutionary war, it like it reverberates to the south today in ways that we in the in the north having been educated in the north kind of don't. It's it's all part of their like southern revisionism, but it but right. it is a real part. The history books really don't like at least the ones that I encountered growing up didn't spend too much time on the way the revolutionary war impacted the civil war. Do you feel like the South had a greater appetite for revolution, uh, that, that dovetailed into the civil war in a, in a unique way that the North didn't have? Like, was that a factor? I think the opposite in, in that, I think the South was more reluctant to go to war against England initially, huh. um, but they had that whatever we still we still deal with today that southern feeling of resistance and recalcitrance and and stubbornness or whatever that once they got into it, you know the the this character Mel Gibson's character is is um, he's a guerrilla fighter that was like considered ungentlemanly in a way those those tactics were like war crimes in and of themselves to shoot from behind a bush when a man had you know when a man couldn't see couldn't see the glint of your silver buckles and there's so much talk of like the fact that they're targeting officers and how yeah and how awful that is in the north like the the minutemen were running around sure but then they would they'd form up in ranks and and take their volley i think that this sort of guerrilla style fighting is a is a development of this swampy south there's a scene where the tom wilkinson general cornwallis is talking about why it's important to have officers and it's this idea that like what if you had an army 
just like a rabble of armed men with no gentlemen to restrain them or whatever. And like, that is such a fascinating conception of like how you have an army, but also like the ungentlemanliness of a certain kind of like political ideology that comes out of the South of like, like, yeah, we don't care about decorum or the rules. We're just going to do whatever it takes to get what we want. Yeah. And that seems very related to uh, modern politics, which is like when one side no longer agrees to the prearranged way things are done, (laughs) when the, when the pre agreed upon rules are, are dissolved, like, what do you have? You have, you have one side fighting with one arm tied behind their backs. If you look at the, at the debate, uh, the debate within the American colonists and the founders of this country, the idea that you couldn't just have a rabble that didn't have gentlemen leading them was sort of the, that was the, one of the foundational arguments of the USA, right? And that's why we had an electoral college, but also why the franchise of the vote wasn't extended to everyone at first. And I mean, there was a, there was a lot of debate within the, within the American, um, within the names that we recognize, as you were saying, Ben, uh, like how exactly to have a country, how, how to have a democracy where you didn't allow the rabble just to vote for things they wanted. We're going back to the pile. Jump in, on, everybody. <laughs> which, is, uh, <laughs> which remains a question in the United States. Right. And, you know, and worldwide, anywhere you want to have a democracy. I mean, this movie, like, that is, like, the the central ideological thrust of, of the film. Like, every bad guy in this movie has a scene where he's shaving. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, these guys, these guys keep it keep it clean and tight fuck them (laughs) we're gonna go live in a swamp yeah that's right a lot of mel gibson's uh associates are like are visibly gross tobacco chewing they're self-consciously like men of the people right i i guess that's the thing that's the thing at at the heart of this movie that makes it hard to stomach um that mel gibson and his and his merry band never profiteer they never rob they never rape they never commit a single act that isn't both just and also a hundred percent of the war crimes are committed by the british in this movie right and that that turns this into a a a summer you know an attempted summer blockbuster (laughs) when it could have been a lot more interesting if those guys were also shown to be uh living off the land or inflicting similar kind of damage on the British, because I think that would have been a lot more uh, accurate. This film clearly wasn't good for the special relationship between our two countries in the year <laughs> 2000, right? <laughs> That's part of the hate watch, is yeah. is that the United Kingdom, they responded really, really vocally to this movie because they're being accused of burning people alive in a church. Yeah, we we have hit the burning church full of a village hat trick, haven't we? <laughs> the next film we watch uh, needs to not have that element. Yeah. <laughs> Re-rack the list, Ben. Yeah. It's weird that the Mel Gibson character is kind of a pacifist at the beginning. He was in the shit. He's seen some shit. Yeah, but speaking of re-racking, like that's kind of a, a theme that Mel Gibson has explored more recently in that Hacksaw Ridge movie, which is on the list. Is that I don't I don't really want to 
watch that next, but is that like worth exploring? Like the arc of Mel Gibson engaging with the concept of pacifism? That's so insane that you say that because on my way in today, I stopped and talked to my neighbor across the street <laughs> and he said, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing a show about the Patriot. And he was like, well, what's your take? <laughs> I started to tell him about it. That's why you were a little late because you had to do the podcast once for your neighbor before you <laughs> yeah, came Yeah, I, I, was, I was running running some stuff by him. You, you were running lines, all the, all the stuff we pre-wrote. <laughs> That's why we got a two-star review by your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> but I swear to you, he said... Well, are you going to do, like, uh, Mel Gibson movies all together? Like, uh, chart his course as a his take on war over the years? And I was like, well, that's not really how we do the show. We have we have a 120-sided die. Have you heard of it? <laughs> and uh, then I come into the show and you're like, why don't we just... Why don't we just break all our rules and just do, like, a Mel Gibson film festival? Oh, fuck it. I don't want to do that. But then as I was leaving, my, my neighbor was like, you know what I love? Revenge movies. Y'all <laughs> ought to do revenge movies. He's like, yeah, us too. <laughs> yeah, like that's that's Mel Gibson's leitmotif. He's a revenge cuck. Revenge, yeah. <laughs> that's his whole deal. He does love some vengeance. That's what you love about him, right, Adam? I should say that like there are themes here that that feel like they come very close to a John Rambo first blood type thematic ideology like when he takes out 30 trained soldiers with like two muskets a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old <laughs> <laughs> There did seem to be kind of an expanding and contracting number of muskets in that scene like they show up with like two guns and then he props like 12 guns against trees those guns take a while to load. Yeah. <laughs> there is that coiled snake feeling for Mel Gibson's character here that he's just ready to strike. And yeah. that is that is something that I do enjoy about a Rambo film. But I do not feel the same way about this one. You just turn it off! You were talking about the, the relative uh, scrubbiness between the two sides. Uh, there's also a great age disparity, too. Uh, in all of the scenes where we're on the battlefield, both sides in the conflict are are youths. They're they're very young, but uh, but Mel Gibson's group are like fifty year old men. Right. <laughs> it was interesting to see like a period war film like this that wasn't a cast of reenactors. We've uh, we've seen beer gut dads that love dressing up in the background and uh they they managed to get like sort of age appropriate soldiers for the uh for the regular army scenes in the deep background you can see a couple of old guys with nascar jackets on yeah back there but very few yeah i mean like one thing that i keep returning to in the in the Fem friendly fire project is how much of dad fantasy a lot of these movies are and this definitely is one of those, like the, like the Liam Neeson, I've got to protect my family at all costs kind of dad fantasy. Hmm. And uh, and everybody in the Ghost Squadron is a is a total dad type. It's weird because growing up with the American Revolution as a story, and with the history of the United States from, you know, from 1620 to 1780 generally being super compressed in the in the storytelling right 
there's not a lot of talk about that 160 years of people from Europe and England specifically living in the United States, settling, I mean, generations, right, of, of people occupied this land. And so when we think about the Revolutionary War, at least I always, I always think about it as being a war sort of being waged by newcomers, settlers, young, young people. They, like, uh, they got on shore, built some houses, and then turned around and, and yeah. said, fuck you to the country <laughs> right. they came from. Severed their ties. Um, but we're as, you know, like at the Revolutionary War, they're as distant from the, the, first, the first settlements here as we are now from the Civil War. So that sort of dadness of them was working for me in the, in the sense that it, it was kind of locating, the, locating this, this population of people more solidly in the, in the spaces that they were in. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't feel like they, were, they had just thrown these houses up. They'd been living here a long time, and this was territory they felt very, they felt connected to generationally. Because, you know, Mel Gibson's kids both really want to get into the fight and Heath Ledger is old enough that he can, and the, the, his younger brother, you know, takes a kind of pyrrhic stand and gets a bullet in the in his first action. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we do see that we do see that that pull to war is is as strong in eighteen year olds as it ever is. But all these reluctant fifty year olds just kind of like having to heave their saggy asses off of the church pew and go out and find their gun in the barn and scrape the rust off of it. Yeah, when they're recruiting out of the church, like those uh, those labored sighs when everyone stands to join. Yeah. It's a real moment. Just like, oh God, alright, okay, fine. We are citizens of an American nation and our rights are being threatened. This movie has like a pretty stacked cast. It's sort of the same thing as uh as saving private ryan it's, it's like there's so many speaking roles for white guys that they basically just you know tipped hollywood up at one end and caught all of them as they tumbled out they dumped a donal Logue out <laughs> <laughs> into the movie yeah but like a really fun range of that guys you know yeah yeah there's uh you know a bunch of tv actors that i'm sure adam you were just excited as excited to see as i was Oh boy, yeah, big time. Uh, Donald Logue, of course. Checky Cario, yeah, playing the French guy. He he was fantastic. Jason Isaacs was great in this movie. He's uniquely able to present as this kind of evil. I thought he was awesome. A similar character to the one he played in Green Zone, weirdly, like yeah. the ultra badass soldier that is. Uh, a little bit working toward his own ends. That is the kind of thinking that wins wars. There's evil, and then there's evil that looks like it's about to cry, and that is what Jason Isaacs does. Like, he does this thing with his eyes that looks unhinged and totally broken yeah. at the same time. Yeah. He's great. He's one of those characters that just says the, the like, core truth of the character out loud, which is, like, <laughs> like the ends justify the means is what he believes at, in, in his heart. And, and so he will do anything. And like strategically what he's doing is super stupid, right? Just making everybody hate the British way more than they did before. And that's also given some voice, like the, the Tom Wilkinson character really 
scolds Jason Isaacs for his methods at the beginning before making a Faustian bargain with them. Yeah, he gets blamed for creating the ghost of Benjamin Martin and all of his supporters. Right. Which is true. It's because of you that I don't have my dogs. The thing about <laughs> Tavington's strategy that's interesting to me is like he's he's pot committed after the atrocities of the first quarter of the film yeah. to the degree where he has no other play but to propose ramping up those actions and getting some land in Ohio in the process. Like there's no going home for him. <laughs> that is such a funny cut. Tell me about Ohio, old boy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you can you can totally see the television version of the film cutting to a Tide advertisement afterwards. <laughs> it's really unusual, I thought, that, that moment where he said, look, I, in order to conduct this war, in order to win it, I have to act in a way that, that I cannot return to England because I would be a pariah. So I don't care. Make, make me rich in Ohio. And it, it's just like, wow, that's, that's actually a very American sentiment. <laughs> I didn't get much of a difference between his activities before and after this scene, which leads me to believe that like before this moment, those actions weren't on the record in the way that they would be after his conversation with Cornwallis, right? No, I think I think that up until that point, he'd been he had been cruel uh, in yeah. the sense that he was burning people's houses, but he wasn't burning people in their houses. He wasn't locking them into the houses before burning them. Yeah, I feel like he he um, he definitely went into like universally condemnable behavior after that. It's an order of operations question. I'm going to do some stuff that only <laughs> Nazis do in movies usually. Yeah, and that I think was a was a valid criticism of this film. Um, and I don't know if you guys read it. It sounds like maybe Ben you did, but there was a there was a a pretty interesting commentary that this was a German director making a film about some bad guy Englishman who burned a village alive. That's a thing that really happened very specifically to one French town uh, during World War II, and it was a Nazi reprisal burning in a very similar fashion to the one that happens in this film. In order to root out the resistance, uh, the Nazis burned a town with everyone in it. And the criticism was that a German director putting that in his film felt very much like an apologist moment, like a uh, a way of saying, "Oh, this happens all the time." It's a this, this is a normal thing that happens in war. Yeah, it's a thing that all bad guys do. Well, I mean, like Come and See made the case that it happened hundreds of times in World War II. It's true at the hands specifically of the Germans. Like we see the Jason Isaac's character very early in the movie being stupendously cruel and sadistic and then he has that conversation with Tom Wilkinson and he feels even more dangerous after that like the, they're able to raise the stakes of of what a bad dude he is in this movie in a way that is really breathtaking and i and i mean it it serves the film in so far as it is a summer blockbuster action movie like you really fucking hate his guts after that but if uh, if we're talking about like the historical record, it obviously doesn't have anything to do with that. There's something about the way Cornwallis is depicted, where he he has an a, an extremely articulated code. Yeah, 
and it is a old boy network code. It's a aristocratic code, but there's something about being in the room with, with someone who says, listen, this kind of killing is, is unethical. It's beyond the pale. He says, these are our brethren. And after the, this war is over, we are going to do commerce with them. So don't burn their <laughs> houses or make them hate you. Right. And there's a kind of reasonableness to that. And, a and an old school, you know, gentleman's handshake kind of worldview that it presents. Yeah. That makes war feel like secure and manageable and like yeah. we're going to confine it to these large fields. It's going to be conducted a certain way. We're not. If gonna... people would like to watch the war, they can uh, go up to the second floor of nearby houses and look That's at right. it out the window. <laughs> the war will start at 9 a.m. Exactly. It will be. A, <laughs> we will. T we will pause for tea. And that just feels like a kind of a kind of war making that we don't. We don't see very often in in the films we watch, and 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 perhaps we had to have the Jason Isaacs character in order to introduce a kind of contemporary feeling that war is that war is dangerous, unpredictable, unhinged. That there's real evil in it. There's a form of evil that is like blessed by power that makes this scene especially dark and. Like dovetailing off of what you were saying, Ben, like Cornwallis turns Lindy England into Stephen Miller in this scene. Like, he, like he gets he gets what? elevated. Say what? Go back. <laughs> because he's taking a rogue agent and like knighting them and officially making this policy. No, no, no. He's not though. Remember, like if you give me this, I will bear the burden of it. And none of this will, none of this blame will accrue to you. That the, that's what makes that that transaction between them so insidious. A little irrespective of of blame, it's a blessing of the sin. Like it's it's an approval of it. Approval in the form of like a tacit nod. He's he's completely rogue. This this character, like Isaac says in that moment where they make that agreement, like and and it's very clear. If anything goes wrong. It's going to be on him. He's going to be hung out to dry. He's probably literally going to hang in the streets of Charleston or Charlestown, as they say throughout this movie. Um, Cornwallis is going to be completely disassociated. He's going, he's going to be able to disavow any knowledge of this, this sort of church burning stuff. You know, it's a little bit of a Richard Nixon talking to Haldeman thing. G. Gordon Liddy doesn't work for the White House. He's, he's on his own here. Um, it, it eventually would find its way, probably, if this had been real, <laughs> it would have found its way <laughs> onto Cornwallis's desk. Well, they, they actually lost several minutes of tape from that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows where it is, so. Yeah, it got erased. Whoops. Unclear how. Yeah. Taped the moon landing over it. <laughs> Speaking of how scary Tavington is, I think the... the one of the most scary things about him is how willing he is to visit his cruelty on Ben Martin's children. And uh, there's a scene where, like, right after that conversation where he heads to the other plantation where Ben Martin's uh, deceased wife's sister is, uh, is looking after all of the kids that are too young to come kill redcoats with him. And... Uh, 
Tavington like looks under the dining room table and somehow misses that there's a kid just on the other side of the tablecloth. But uh, there's a there was a, a moment of pedantry that I found really remarkable in the IMDb goof section about this scene. It's like directed by M. Night Shyamalan, total, total left turn. When Tavington is searching for the child hiding under the table, his boots are clearly visible and certainly of the left-right variety. Boots were made with straight lasts until the 1800s. Whoa. So, so not a moment of pedantry about how he definitely would have seen that kid, but a moment of pedantry about how the boots are of the wrong design. Wow, straight lasts. <laughs> yeah, can you imagine? You could just put your left boot on your right foot and it would be fine. It wow. wasn't until the 1800s that people realized that feet were not symmetrical. Yeah. <laughs> Idiots. I mean, that was a harrowing scene. <laughs> it's super scary. But it's one, it's one of like the 10 scenes in the movie where you go, what? What? Was he hiding behind a table leg? You know, that yeah. that's... Scenes like that don't have to happen, you know? All they needed was a tablecloth that went th- three or four inches further down and yeah. like was touching the floor, and then you wouldn't have had that moment of confusion. And it's so weird that they didn't just realize that. One other thing in the room that he could have been hiding behind, I mean, <laughs> just yeah. to... I mean, you could... What's crazy, what the craziest about that, I wish I could screenshot it, is that the top of the kid's head was over the top of the table when he was crouching, but he was too big. Yeah, but there were a couple bowls of hair uh, on that table <laughs> that I think obscure the top of the kid's head. Very popular dish at the time. Right. Yeah, you want that the, hair centerpiece. The thing that drove me crazy is that they had this they had this uh, readout, this, uh, this little uh, rebel lair out in the swamp, um, that they had decorated like the ultimate goth music video set. Um, just candelabra everywhere. They had, you yeah. know, they had like pots. Yeah, it looked like a meatloaf and, video out there. It did. Um, also, there were there were a couple of scenes pretty early on. There's a scene where uh, Mel Gibson and the two boys are are in the house together, and there are sixty candles burning, and it's like. Candles were expensive, and uh, if there were just like a dad and two sons sitting around at night, like reading books, they would have had, they would have been burning like one or two candles, right? You you, you wouldn't he he had the, he had enough candles burning in there to light a ball, yeah. Uh, so that was a little bit of candle pedantry that I felt, mm. but also if, the, if one man is going to be the candle pedant of the show, it's going to be you, John, the owner of. 20 candelabras <laughs> but but uh but their lair in the swamp as as uh, w- which is the old spanish mission right oh it also has a, like a submerged graveyard i mean it really i want to make a music video there apparently that's a, a botanical garden that they rented out and flooded because they they couldn't find a swamp that looked right for that for that set Really, and so yeah. and the botanical garden was fine with being flooded, huh? Boy, I, I guess imagine, for enough money. I imagine for enough money, yeah. I mean, it seems like something that would really wipe out a botanical garden for a couple of years. 
It was uh, Roland Emmerich did a real Tony Scott and uh, paid the owner of the botanical garden to flood it <laughs> for the purposes of the movie. Cut him a $20,000 check on the spot. To leave the hose on? Yeah. Just, t- just turn your botanical garden around. Let us get that shot again. Uh, but no, that, that rebel base would have been so plagued by mosquitoes. Yeah. Like that would have been an intolerable place to sit. But it, it made for such a dramatic reveal when they all come like riding in on horseback and boat. Boat back? <laughs> boat back. When they come back from their one week furlough. The village that they go visit is a Gullah village. And this is like a thing that I had never encountered in, oh, my, yeah. in my travels. The Gullah people yeah. are like a African-American culture that exists in this part of uh of the south i guess and and it only in the islands like uh, out um the coastal islands yeah and and they're like ex-slaves but that like that hadn't been separated from their african cultures for generations so they still have a lot of there's there's still a lot of like active african traditions and they have their own Creole language that contains a lot of African uh, root words that's very similar to like Bahamian and stuff. I wonder what Spike Lee thought about its depiction as Black Endor in this film, though. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it still exists. The Gullah culture survives to this day. I mean, you know, it's it's under siege like all those cultures that survived in part because they didn't have contact with the outside. But you can visit the Gullah Islands and and some of those traditions and like s- survive. I mean that that language still exists. There's an internal logic in the film that allows for the idea of Benjamin Martin's black workers to not be slaves, but I do not understand how they are greeted at the Gullah as friends. You know, his housekeeper, cook, nanny uh, was Gullah and retreated to her village, so they were they had an inn. They were greeted by her, and she clearly was a you know a lead in a leadership role within that village. So she vouched. She vouched for them as right. like the good kind of the good kind of white uh, uh, plantation owners. Does <laughs> doesn't everyone want to get to work for free on this wedding between Gabriel and Anne? <laughs> Listen, there's no threat to our community in having these rebellious uh, white toe-headed kids running around heavily armed white guys hanging around (laughs) (laughs) no one will ever think to find them here yeah just like like let's have donald Logue, a man uh, who has expressed his avowed racism three times in this film already come hang out with us really interesting that this is the safest location in the film right yeah they are never in any any danger here at all somehow like totally outside the action like nobody is coming and trying to like take it over as a strategic uh stronghold or anything the conflict in this scene is the one between ben martin and charlotte she's been into him from jump but these are feelings that he never expresses verbally uh like his reluctance to pursue anything with charlotte is suggested by the idea that the only reason he doesn't is because Charlotte is his late wife's sister. That's it. That's all. She seems great for him. Well, he kind of looks down at her because she's one of the plantation owners that has slaves. And he's like, <laughs> slave owner, huh? Gross. Yeah. That's either really good good movie making or really bad 
movie making. It's and I can't. I, I don't know if I could tease apart which it was, but <laughs> she she's really into him throughout the movie. He shows only a kind of awkwardness around her, and then in that moment where they're sitting there, and she's like, oh, "Oh my God, Ben, come on, like lean over, kiss me." This is the only part of the film where Jolie Richardson is given anything. Yeah. And I think she's great in this scene, but I think she's criminally underused in the film. She's she's great in the scene. It's very believable. And what is not believable is is Mel Gibson, who goes, huh, what? And then all of a sudden uh, does what I, I can only guess was Mel Gibson's version of like, oh, I'm I'm so into you right now. Which we don't we don't get that a lot in Mel Gibson movies, right? He's not he's not a romantic lead. He's a he's like a hero lead. He gets the girl, but only because he's killed everyone else. What did you say? Considering all Mel Gibson movies, Jolie Richardson seems way too old for him in this one. <laughs> well, she she is like first alternate. Are there any astrology pedants that could tell us whether or not the North Star would be in that position in South Carolina in this? <laughs> In this time of year. You want Neil deGrasse Tyson to criticize this scene? It's right there in the script, Adam. The North Star never moves. It's the one star that never moves. The universe rotates around the North Star. But no, I feel like what, what, what could be great movie making in that moment is that Mel Gibson, that might have been a marriage, or I'm sorry, a coupling of convenience for him. He might not have loved her. He might have just realized, oh, I need someone to care for my my surviving children. It's pretty fucked up how Charlotte's just the babysitter the entire time. Like, make it official. That's what made me feel like, oh, maybe his awkwardness and lack of romance in that is actually, like, kind of period appropriate. Is she supposed to be a widow? Like, what's the deal with the fact that she has her own plantation? This isn't exactly a time where, like, a enterprising woman could become a gentlewoman farmer. That's a great question. None, none of these people, like, built these these plantations out of their own ingenuity. They didn't build that. No, no. They inherited <laughs> that shit. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, who knows? Maybe her father recently died. One thing I do know is that Charlotte's babysitting job is getting easier by the day with every one of Ben Martin's children getting killed. God damn. The the moment that I uh, because there was a moment in this movie where I where I cried and I didn't see it coming and it was when his youngest daughter who had re- rejected him but in that moment as he's leaving the Gullah village to go back to the war and he tried to get her to talk and she she ran away and then she realized uh you know you see you see it unfold on her little face absolutely devastated me and it was great acting on the part of the little girl but like yeah hell of a performance for such a little child it just hit me um right where i live and so that stuff was very believable to me and and um and it and it impressed me, and I think it I think it's one of the main things that's making me not savage this movie is that there was this parent child thing happening within it. I'm a childless non breeder. I rep that on this show along with you ben. do have you do have a a decrepit cat that doesn't allow anyone to touch it, and you have like a bath mat that masquerades as a dog. 
<laughs> the that sequence was I thought that sequence was really good, but the part that affected me more than Susan's pleading of please don't go was the part that came before, which was when Ben Martin reaches for her and she withdraws and then Martin withdraws. I thought that was the the core moment of that scene for me, and that's what affected me. I thought Susan's please don't go as the violin swell feels like tell me I'm a good man. Like that that is like hat on emotional hat for me. It was it was the physical acting of that scene that I thought was what made it great. Yeah, I agree. But I'm a no child, so what do I know? <laughs> I watched this movie on a plane, so I cried at everything. <laughs> <laughs> we were heroes. It's a really beautiful movie. Uh, cinematographer is Caleb Deschanel, father wow. of Emily and Zoe Deschanel. Yep. Uh, I've met him. Really? Yeah. Uh, I I think uh, one of the best looking movies we've watched. And and like it's in an interesting time where there are some digital visual effects, but they really hold up and and in general make it better, not worse. There's so much romance in it, and and I wondered if the actual patriotism in the movie is somewhat undercut by the fact that he's sort of had his hand forced into this war and. And also is a a totally fake character. Like that's an amalgam of several things that's, you know, whitewashed to to make us like him. Like does this does the patriotic imagery like affect you? Do do you find that it's moving in it in itself? I think in to the first part of your question, absolutely. Like in the same way like the equivalent for me is you can be a moral person and not be religious. Like the idea that someone is doing something in order to get something else weakens that person's moral center. And so like I look at Ben Martin and try to figure out whether or not he's a patriot, but like he's not running off of his own engine. Like his motivations are not purely patriotic. He's he's revenge filled. Yeah. If his kid wasn't shot in the back, I think he'd probably still be sidelined, right? He'd have to be. I think it's not just that his kid is shot in the back, but also that they're taking Heath Ledger to go to go hang him. You know, and and I try to be dispassionate about these movies so that I can talk about them. But like when we talk about a film like The Ottoman Lieutenant, which is made with a you know the nationalism of the Turks as the as the thing it is meant to stoke, like. I definitely, you know, when I see like a bunch of guys on horseback and a Betsy Ross flag come over the hill, find myself uh, emotionally subject to that, you know, like I, I connect to that. And I, I, I was very like self-conscious about that in watching this movie. How sure were you? that Ben Martin was going to stab Tavington with the American flag. I know. <laughs> I, th I was fully, fully sure. As sure about that as anything in my entire life. I thought that was going to happen. I know. Come on, please <laughs> give it to us. Instead, it's the horse that gets it. Yeah. That's not good. Uh, it's occurring to me now to look at this movie in the context of when it arrived. And this is a movie from the year 2000. Before everything changed. The millennium. It's before the day that we'll live in infamy, right? It's before 9-11. Uh, and I think when it came out, 
it read as pretty as like way over the top, way sort of propagandistic, a kind of American self-aggrandizement that we just weren't into then. Yeah, like the, if this movie came out in 2002, like summer 2002, would it have been double the box office? Yeah, probably. It probably would have been way more anti-French and pro-British, though. <laughs> but both of those contexts are important in terms of how the movie was received in its time. Watching it now, where patriotism itself is a is a concept that we just, you know, every time I walk out of the door, I'm like, uh, what's real? You know? Yeah. What? I have a red, white, and blue baseball hat that just says USA. And I like find myself not wanting to wear it just because I don't want to give anyone the wrong idea. Yeah. Right. And I, I, mean, and I realize like, like that's because this just like wearing this would mean so many things to so many different people. And I want to be like in control of what, I'm representing. It would really yeah. clash with your yellow "Don't Tread on Me" shirt, though. Also, <laughs> yeah, and your and, and your uh, marks and linen, left and right shoes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I consider myself an, a patriot, right? An American, and uh, <laughs> at risk of of uh, some strings swelling in the background of our program, like I'm, <laughs> I'm like a proud American, right? right. The, the ability to say, like, I am a progressive, liberal, American patriot has changed so much in the 20 years since this movie was made. Because you could say that in 1998 with a straight face. You could, you could assert it in 2004 as you were being assailed. You know, you could stand, try and stand your ground against this storm and say, no, I am also a patriot, but I do not believe in this war in Iraq. Yeah, somebody's yelling, support the troops at you. And you're like, I'm not <laughs> right, saying could, I don't support the troops. That's not the argument. You <laughs> screamed into submission, right? And now to say like, I am a progressive liberal American who wants healthcare for all <laughs> and I am a patriot an American patriot, it just, how do you not compartmentalize it and just, and still stand that ground without, without falling into that trap of apologizing or disavowing the United States, which is a, which is our whole, I mean, which is a, which is a great experiment in the world. Um, and so watching it this time, I felt like, wow, if this movie was made today, it would be 10,000 times more jingoistic than this. Like right. this feels subtle by comparison. <laughs> if Clint Eastwood directed this movie right now, yeah. I mean, there would be flags up everyone's ass. If Clint Eastwood directed this film, the atrocities visited upon those chairs wouldn't be depicted though. <laughs> those chairs would stay in one piece. Get off my lawn. The rocking chair comedy in this, in this yeah. movie like it is literally like director credit fades up, rocking chair collapses, and it like sets a tone like, oh, this is going to be a jokey movie about a guy that like sucks at being a pioneer or something. All Ben Martin wanted to be was a rocking chair maker, yeah. <laughs> but you just can't make any rocking chairs. <laughs> Maybe if uh, Mel Gibson was a Quaker instead of an Opus Dei. He would uh, he would be better at making rocking chairs. Considering the Opus Deiness of him, there's a weird lack of 
Christian piety in this movie. Like he never is piety. How you attempt to pronounce the word piety? <laughs> hmm. I guess I'm so I glad guess, this didn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess pi- piety is one way you could say it. That's sort of my dialect. <laughs> okay. P- p- yeah. Piety. You're one of those uh, practitioners of the English language that has a yellow bandana hanging out your back pocket. <laughs> I mean, I try to be pious in all of my <laughs> affairs. Okay. And, he, and he's not very pious mm. in this movie, right? He doesn't He doesn't throw- yeah. In um, real life, he's a he, pious freak, but, uh, but in this movie. <laughs> but he doesn't make this character or this- uh, the, the, There's not a ton of- He doesn't um, say anything about how since Vatican II, there hasn't been a legitimate pope. Well, no, because he wouldn't have been Catholic in this film, of course good old american anglican like all americans right also it was called uh, vatican first blood part two <laughs> directed by george p cosmatos <laughs> in the end uh tavington is through and throughed by what is that a cutlass a saber what what kind of buick goes through uh <laughs> the body of william tavington he hands Mel Gibson his ass in this scene, though. Yeah. I mean, he cuts him seven ways from sideways yeah. with wounds that felt to me almost not survivable in the sense of infection on a battlefield. Don't like, send me your him. emails. I know it was a bayonet that, that goes through his throat. <laughs> <laughs> Just wanted to share my knowledge of Buick automobiles. <laughs> That's a tough wound, though, the bayonet through the throat. Yeah. That's, uh, that's going to be That's going to get infected. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Going to leave a mark. When did Buick stop naming their automobiles after swords and start naming them after, like, gated communities? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would love to interrogate this. What, what, name some Buicks that are named after gated communities. Buick Enclave? Hmm. There's one. Right. Go on. That's the only Buick model I can think of off the top of my head, so I don't know if there's a theme or not. Anyways, <laughs> you can tell we've really like gone way too long when we start talking about Buicks. I'm surprised that Buicks still exist, actually. Yeah, yeah, they shouldn't. You know, Pontiac, Pontiac doesn't exist. Because Pontiac saw the writing on the wall. Um, do we want to rate the movie? Yeah, I think we have to, right? Just as... Ben Martin had to kill Tavington, so do we have to kill this movie with our reviews? I have a question, Adam. Yeah. Do do we have like a system we could use for rating it? That's a great question, Ben. Uh, there is a system. It's a system that that I've constructed for every movie we watch on Friendly Fire. It's a system of one to five things. The reason the things are different for every movie is so we don't compare one movie to another, and that's fair, right? That's in the spirit of fairness. It is, although we do that a lot more than we used to, compare one yeah. movie to another. It's hard not to, right? It is. We've watched a lot of movies. In The Patriot, we've talked about an object best suited for such a rating system. It's the broken rocking chair. And the reason that I'm using it as this film's rating system is because like, the act of making something aesthetically pleasing, but having that thing not be useful for any greater purpose feels like what this movie is, right? This is a film that clearly 
had a lot of effort put into it, it looks like it should work. It looks like it could be sat upon and support the weight of a, of a human adult. I don't believe it does, and it's because it turns a movie about the revolution into a story about family, which is fine. Like, if you were to tell me, hey, watch this movie called The Family, or Mel Gibson's Revenge Fantasy, like, I I think I could accept it for what it is a little bit better, but Mel Gibson's face hovering above the flag on the movie poster looking maybe even more Christ-like than he ever has been. It's it's weird. Tonally, it does not match what it says on the can. And that is setting aside its just tremendous length. Like, I think there are some valid reasons for a movie being as long as this. For instance, uh, a story being large enough to be contained in almost three hours. I don't think this film checks that box uh the characters being so great that you can't bear to leave them i don't know if this film uh, prescribes to that theory either or like if you're a great filmmaker with final cut authority i think you're able to make an almost three hour film and i do not believe that uh, emmerich is that guy and yet he is granted that with the patriot it is insane to me i i mean this movie is fine it is just <laughs> Fine. <laughs> it is fine in the sense that only two broken rocking chairs could could describe. You know, like, we hardly ever talked about Heath Ledger in this film. Heath Ledger, who is doing Heath Ledger amounts of work here, and yet I feel like is almost totally forgotten in... Like, if you were to, to examine his career, I don't think this was a high point for him at all. Does not suggest a, a greater career that he would have afterward... Uh, but I liked seeing him. Yeah. It made me miss him. Definitely. Two chairs for me for The Patriot. I'm going to come in at, uh, at two and a half broken chairs for uh, similar reasons. I think that um, the reason I'm not just burying it is that, like, as an action movie, as the thing it, to some extent, sets out to be, it's pretty good as a artifact of history i think it uh it falls all over itself but there were some things that i learned from this movie that i didn't know about like i really liked seeing them arrive at the gullah village and wondering what the heck that was and then like like what did they go to did they go to the bahamas like what where are they and then like reading about the movie and and learning about this whole like culture that i'd never even heard of that's part of my country, you know, like was a, like, I really loved that moment. And I loved the way it made me think about what patriotism means to me in, uh, in this time. So, uh, Mel Gibson's a piece of shit. This is not a great movie, but, uh, there were some redeeming aspects to both his performance and the movie itself. How many gullas would you have given it, Ben? Oh, I would, I would give, it all, give it all the gullas. Sure. Mm, give it all the gullas. <laughs> I was surprised at this, at, at, at watching this movie, and, I, and I'm, I take both of your comments to heart, and I agree with you, Adam, that there, uh, and I, it hadn't occurred to me until you said it, but you could refocus this film and not make it 
about the Revolutionary War, but make it about this guy. Call it the Swamp Fox and make it about this guy and his family and the and him being a, you know, a rebel raider or whatever. Um, you would have to reshoot some stuff. You could make this movie about the Revolutionary War, in which case you'd have to have a lot more. You know, there could have been a couple of title cards that had maps of what was happening because Cornwallis ended up, he ended up losing the revolutionary war in a way. I mean, the, the final battle, the final surrender of the war was of Cornwallis. And, um, during the, during his surrender famously, he was so humiliated at having been defeated by the Americans that he did. He refused to attend the surrender and sent his executive officer to take his sword down and surrender it because it was such an indignity to him. Hey, I know who you were expecting, uh, but I, I mean, I brought the sword or whatever. Here's the sword. He couldn't come. He's feeling a little bit blue. Kind of just like uh, the end of uh, Master and Commander, right? Right. The, Where the, the, the French the, captain doesn't uh, make himself known. He impersonates the French doctor. Although that was hard to know whether it was an act of cowardice or, or whether he was planning to... Oh, uh, I never thought of it that way. Stage an insurrection after the, I mean, that's why they chased after him at that point, right? To Because halfway out at sea, he might have. Oh, I thought they were just heading, heading to kick that guy in the nuts for being so tricky. Yeah, maybe. Well, you know, the French are tricky. But <clears throat> as I said, there were a couple of affecting moments in this movie. I've, I haven't seen every Mel Gibson movie. Um, and Oh, you gotta. I know. I'm well, we're going to probably eventually, but, but this was the, I didn't expect to be, I didn't expect to, as a father be moved by Mel Gibson's portrayal of a father. And that surprised me. And I didn't, I think maybe part of why I, I'm going to stop short of saying I liked it, but part of why I, I enjoyed my time with this movie was that I expected to hate it and didn't. And that in and of itself was a surprise. Because it is a good adventure movie. There, there are, there's lots of stuff going on, you know, from scene to scene. You're like, what happens next? Chomp, chomp, chomp. You know, there, it's, it's, it, it cooks along. And even within its own universe, it, it makes a hash of, of telling like a coherent story, except as a revenge movie. Do you mean hash positively or negatively in this Negatively. Context? It okay. makes a, because I don't like potatoes. Mm. So oh, right. I'm glad I asked then because I was thinking that's delicious. That's the thing. A hash is five delicious ingredients chopped up with a bunch of mealy potatoes. You know what's fucked up is that you were the creator of hash at the bash and you didn't even like potatoes. Yeah, I created hash at the bash because I was tired of freaking making breakfast for 11 drunks every <laughs> every day at, at 1 a.m. What I didn't understand was... It was self-defense. It was, and what I didn't understand was I used to have to make breakfast for 11 drunks. Now I had to make breakfast for 700 drunks because as soon as word of hash after the bash got out, it became a citywide phenomenon. No, I was just tired of flipping eggs. It was 1 o'clock mm. in the morning, and these people couldn't even keep their heads up. And I, and they and they want sunny side up eggs? Fuck you! I want to go home. Anyway, that was so far over my head. <laughs> I think a hash is is a thing that um, a thing where you take good ingredients and then you mix it with potatoes. 
Ben, try to imagine John being put in a position of power in a commercial kitchen. <laughs> it's insane to me. I'm just glad that somebody has worse food takes than I do. <laughs> wow. Uh, but I'm going to give this, um, oof, it's really hard for me to give it three rocking chairs because that feels like a, it feels like an endorsement, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to wow. give it three wow. rocking chairs, three homemade breakable rocking chairs. Yeah, we'll, we'll see if they can they can support your weight. Three three rocking chairs that cannot support my weight is what I'm giving this. <laughs> it seems like a rarity that John rates a film higher than me or Ben, but it's just happened. Well, and uh, and I think a big part of that rating is that I was that I was surprised that I went into this movie with a lot of expectations and I was surprised that not that the film failed to you know, be consistent with those expectations, but just that it was 10% less bad than 10% less bad across the board than I expected it to be. It's so much better than Braveheart, which really surprised me. So much me. better. Yeah. So much better than Braveheart. That's exactly what I, that's exactly, that's it in a nutshell, right? I expected it to be a lesser Braveheart and it was a, and it was a better Braveheart. Well put. But still, those chairs can't support my weight. So, <laughs> yeah, just for looking at. <laughs> Where would you put your guy in all this, John? Very early on in the film, when they first arrive at Mel Gibson's house, they're arresting Heath Ledger. Uh, it's the first time we've really seen the Redcoats, and this British officer is—he's just a, a just a regular old officer in the army who. <laughs> believes there's a way to do things pretty consistent with the book that he read when they when he joined the army jean villeneuve is just a regular french army officer <laughs> until one day <laughs> um and he you know and and uh and mel gibson is there he's treating the wounded of both sides on the deck and this officer says you know thank you for tending to our wounded he says you know we're gonna gonna mop up here we're gonna do things a certain way and then uh then our bad guy rides up and says burn the house down and we're gonna take this kid away and hang him and the officer is like like hapless he's like you you're gonna what now like none of those things are what we should do in this moment and he's outranked so he stands there in just a state of sort of like horrified befuddlement as the situation, which he had well in hand. He had it completely under control. And then the guy in the green jacket came and really fucked it up. And then in the next, so, so our guy just stands there like, ah, and you can see it on his face. Like, I'm sorry, this, I wouldn't have burned your house, but ah, not a lot I can do. And then in the immediate next scene when Mel Gibson goes rogue, he's like one of the first officers to get a musket ball right through the head. And you just feel like, well, that's what you get for following the books. You know, he was he was one of these old boy officers, like fighting a war according to a code that made me feel like there were people in the world that could be trusted. And uh, he, he was, you know, he was buried in a mud hole like the rest of the world. Dark. <laughs> you got to believe that a body is not going to stay buried in mud, right? No, they float right to the top. 
Uh, it will surprise no one to find out that my guy was the French guy, Jean Villeneuve. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you've got a winning ticket, go up to the window. Yeah. Uh, he, he wasn't my guy the entire time, but then he said that thing about if I'm going to die, I'm going to be well-dressed. And uh, I, I stand that. He adjusts his groin as much as you do. Hell yeah. After emerging from a tent. Yeah. He didn't look that dirty for a guy wearing white the whole time either. My guy is John Billings, who is played by Leon Rippey, and he is an actor that I just love. Um, John Billings uh, is not afforded the backstory that Ben Martin is allowed to give in his large Marge atrocity story from earlier, (laughs) but John Billings was like if not party to, adjacent to that kind of thing in earlier conflicts. But what makes John Billings my guy is that his is the only other character permitted to grieve as much as Mel Gibson's character. Because when they come upon his homestead and see it burned and his family killed, like all of his stages of grief are compressed into 30 seconds and they feel real and terrible in a way that uh, Mel Gibson was allowed to act earlier. He's the only one that goes all the way up to 11 in the film, just like Gibson does. And I thought with what little Leon Rippey was given, I thought he did a whole lot with it. And uh, he's my guy for it. Good Good guy. guy. Watch Deadwood. Leon Rippey is great in Deadwood. Watch Star Trek The Next Generation. He's great in that too. Mm Mm-hmm. There are a lot yep. of, uh, you know, René Albert Jeanois. Is that how you say it? René Albert Jeanois? Yeah. How do you say it? I think you did it right. Albert yeah. Jeanois. He, uh, he's also a, a big Star trek isn't he? He is. Yep. How many Star Treks are there in this movie? Uh, we know two of them. There's a third, right? Anyway, these movies where you where you turn over the Quaker Oats can and shake out every actor in Hollywood. Oh, Jason all... Isaacs. J- Jason Isaacs was uh, Captain Lorca in Star Trek Discovery. That's right. Oh, there you go. When we shake up the Quaker Oats can of friendly fire movies and then uh, <laughs> yes. and then dump them out, uh, there's only one way to find out what film is next, and that's John's giant 120 sided die. Why don't you take that thing out of its sack and give it a roll, John? All right, here here we go. Number 114. Wow, really close to the uh to the upper capacity of that die. Yeah. Oh my god. You guys are not going to believe this, but number 114 is another Melvin Gibson property. Come on. I'm not kidding. You guys can check the spreadsheet. <laughs> to confirm that I am not lying. It was set in uh, Okinawa in World War II. It's a 2016 movie called Hacksaw Ridge. Didn't... What? This is his big comeback to the director's chair after being canceled for being a garbage human. But did we, not earlier in this episode, suggest watching exactly Hacksaw Ridge? It did get suggested and I swear to god I did not put my my thumb on the scale that is literally what one what movie 114 was on the list and I ran this strange the- credulity Adam do you buy this it's really hard to believe I guys <laughs> <laughs> it's a fucking coincidence okay it's all all right go go I look at it. the list no I love it I love it I trust you we trust you Ben I don't all think right. you do 
Boy, you're getting <laughs> Mel Gibson angry right now. It sounds like a it sounds like a Mel Gibson voicemail. I don't want to live inside that guy's mind. He's a he's a piece of shit. Your Mel Gibson hatred is really, really starting to affect this show. The entire show, even when we're not watching Mel Gibson movies. Did you know that he was he was named in the Jersey papers? He's not just a an anti Semite racist drunk asshole. He's also a tax dodger. He doesn't pay his fair share. Fuck him. Oh now that's beyond the pale. Now I'm mad. Now I'm really mad. Pay your taxes, Americans. All right, well, the Hacksaw Ridge, then, it is. <laughs> I'm sorry to everybody who's going to have to sit through a second goddamn Gibson movie. More like Taxaw Ridge, am I right? Yeah, seriously. Boom. <laughs> That'll be next time. So we'll leave it with Rob's from here. For Adam Pranica and John Roderick, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire is a Maximum Fun podcast hosted by Ben Harrison, John Roderick, and Adam Pranica. It's produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music. And our logo art is by Nick Dittmore. If you feel like supporting the show, head on over to MaximumFun.org donate. It helps us keep the lights on over here at Friendly Fire. And as an added bonus, you'll get access to our Pork Chop feed, as well as all of the other bonus content on Maximum Fun. If you'd like to share the show online, use the hashtag FriendlyFire. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR. Adam is at CutForTime. John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks, we'll see you next week. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.